listening. Here we go. You know, I could see him. So. Hello, I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. I'm Kai Roosevelt. It is Tuesday. This one is the 9th of May. Today, single topic on the single show on Tuesdays. That's what we do. Why poverty in the United States, uh, in a country as rich as it is, the richest country in the history of the planet, there are still millions and millions and millions and millions of people, many of them children, living in poverty. Right. And even though we've talked about how child poverty fell 46% during the pandemic, poverty overall has pretty much stayed more or less the same over the last 50 years. And here to make us smart about why that is, is Princeton sociologist Matthew Desmond. His new book, Poverty by America, digs into some of those systems that keep poverty in place and what can be done to potentially change it. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So the title of your book, Poverty by America, what's different Mm. about poverty in America Mm -hmm. compared to the rest of the world and particularly other developed countries? There's a lot more of it. So our child poverty rate is twice the rate of peer nations like Canada, South Korea, and Germany. The kind of poverty that we have too is is worse. So Angus Deaton, the Mm -hmm. Nobel laureate, Estimated that over 5 million Americans live in abject poverty by global standards, getting by on $4 a day or less. So America really harbors a hard bottom layer of poverty that a lot of rich democracies don't. Why? Why, why, why? Because many of us profit from it. You know, some lives are made small so that others may grow. This isn't an accident. You know, many of us are contributing to poverty in our midst, even unwittingly. We're connected to the problem and we're connected to the solution. One of the examples you give in the book is the money that we spend on the mortgage interest deduction compared to the money that we spend on, say, cash assistance for the poor. Can you explain that? Sure. In 2020, uh, the nation spent $193 billion, billion with a B, dollars on homeowner tax subsidies, like the mortgage interest deduction. Most of that money went to families that were quite well off already. But that same year, we only spent about $53 billion on direct housing assistance to the needy, things like public housing, housing vouchers that reduce your rent. And so that's a real imbalance. Then we have to kind of face the fact that, you know, a mortgage suburban home is government subsidized, Mm -hmm. just like uh, a public housing story tower is. And when you look at the welfare state, you look at it deeply and you find that, you know, we're doing a lot more to subsidize affluence than to fight poverty. And I'd like us to bring us back into balance on that issue. Yeah, I want to get there, actually, because where things go from here is is the key part of this conversation, I think. But I do want to just sort of get a timestamp here and ask you how long it's been this way. Well, America has always wrestled with poverty in its midst. But there were times when we made significant investments in fighting poverty, and we had a lot of success. So if you look at the War on Poverty and the Great Society that were launched in the 60s, these were deep investments in the poorest families in America. They made food aid permanent, established Social Security and Medicaid, for example. Ten years after the War on Poverty was launched, poverty was cut in half in the country. And so it's not true 
that we have to live with this or that we've always had this high level of poverty. There have been times where the government has done massive amounts of good. And like you said in the intro, COVID was one of those times. You know, we cut child poverty by 46% in six months with one simple program, the child tax credit, which was a subsidy to moderate and low-income families. So we know how to do this. So then where do we go wrong? Because a lot of people will blame it to, say, the you know, on the Reagan administration and cuts to anti-poverty programs there. Did that really sort of start us on the wrong track or did something else happen? So the Reagan administration did cut some key anti-poverty programs, especially housing, uh, cut uh, aid to housing by almost 70%, 70%, which was a massive yeah. reduction. And we've never recovered from that. But other anti-poverty programs have actually grown uh, per capita and adjusting for inflation over the last 50 years. So we have this paradox where we are making deeper investments. We're spending a bit more, uh, but we poverty is persisting, right? And why is that? And one of the reasons is that the job market just isn't pulling its weight. So if you look at the war on poverty or the Great Society, you know, back then, one in three workers belonged to a union. Real wages were climbing. You got some benefits. But as workers lost power, their jobs got a lot worse, wages stagnated. And so now we have to spend more just to stay in the same place. And so there's a big learning lesson here that if we want to abolish poverty in America, we don't just need deeper investments in poverty, we need different ones. We need ones that really attack exploitation in the labor market and the housing markets. Okay, so this is going to be a tricky question to ask, but I'm going to throw it at you and then you can answer it just based on your last answer there. Do you think we really want to eradicate poverty in America based on what you see in public policy right now? Well, who's the we there, right? And so I think that we as an American people certainly do. You know, most Americans today, left, right, and center, believe that poverty result of unfair circumstances, not a moral failing. Most Americans want a higher minimum wage. Most of us think the rich aren't paying their fair share of taxes. So I think the American people, they certainly want this. Uh, Our elected officials, that's another matter. And I think that our elected officials are polarized from the people more than the people are polarized from each other on issues of basic economic fairness. How differently do we talk about spending when it comes to anti-poverty programs as a culture compared to the way that we talk about other government spending? Well, we often kind of saddle anti-poverty programs with these assumptions that um, the poor aren't using the money in a responsible way or that they're dependent on the government. And if you look at the data, you realize that welfare dependency, just there's not a lot of evidence for it. You know, that's not the issue. The issue is actually welfare avoidance. The fact that millions and even billions and billions of dollars in unused aid from anti-poverty programs is left on the table every year. So let me just give you a few statistics, you know. If you add up all the money that low-income families don't take by not accounting for food stamps or not taking unemployment insurance, supplemental security income, all these kind of welfare programs designed for them, you learn that every single year over $140 billion is left on the table. This is not a picture of welfare dependency at all, right? This is a picture of us as a nation doing a pretty poor job of connecting families to programs that they need and deserve. So it's a, in some ways, it's, it's a logistics problem. 
That's right. And, you know, we used to think that the issue was stigma, that folks mm-hmm. weren't taking mm-hmm. food stamps or unemployment because they were proud, you know, and there is something to that. If you've ever spent, you know, a day in the welfare office, you know, you're spending half your day for a 10 minute appointment and, and it is kind of degrading. Mm-hmm. But there's more evidence that it's not stigma, it's really red tape and bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. We make these programs incredibly hard to apply for, confusing. In some states, you have to get fingerprinted and photographed to apply for, for these programs. And so this is, this is both infuriating, but also hopeful, because it means that we can design programs more efficiently and kind of make a big first step in getting people connected to aid that reduces their hunger and relieves their hardship. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Mm-hmm. What actually works? Oh, so many things work in a way. You know, if you look at housing assistance, for example, you know, kids that are growing up in public housing today do a lot better than kids that are growing up in the private market unassisted. And so you think, wow, what, what's going on there? But we just haven't made these investments big enough. And so um, I think that making deeper investments in programs that work make a lot of sense. And we saw in COVID again that things like a child tax credit or affordable housing assistance that reduced evictions to the lowest rate on record ever uh, can make big steps in the right direction. Could I uh, just on the on the bureaucracy point of this, and I should know the answer, but I don't. Um, anti-poverty and social safety net programs in this country are and please correct me if I'm wrong, which I, I, I know you will, are federally funded but mostly state-administered, or do I have that backwards? It depends on the program. Okay, all and right. So if you, look at, if you look at things like cash welfare, yeah. right, it's federally funded but state-administered. Right. And because of that, states use a lot of liberty on how right. to get the, the dollars out. That's and that's actually, that's a problem, yeah. Right, that's where, that's where I'm going, right? Part of this bureaucracy is, is because of the, the bifurcated nature of some of these programs. That's right. And so let's dig in a little bit into cash welfare. So cash welfare is a block grant, which is just a wonky way of saying, hey, states, here's some money and do what you will with that. And for every dollar budgeted in cash welfare, only 22 cents ends up in the pockets of a family in terms of direct aid. And so you think, well, what, what's going on there? And so a lot of states are, are finding really creative ways to use that money. They're funding Christian summer camps and marriage classes and things that Man, really don't have to do with, with helping four families at all. A lot of states aren't spending the money. They don't have to, and they're sitting on it. So Tennessee, for example, last time I checked, was sitting on over $700 million in unused mm. cash welfare. And, you know, this is, wow. this is for the poorest families. So this means kids aren't getting enough to eat. This means families are getting evicted. And so I think that this is a way we need to kind of think about more oversight and transparency and accountability into mm-hmm. how states are spending this, this taxpayer money. Mm-hmm. And I'd hmm. be remiss if I didn't mention here that our colleague Chrissy Clark is mm-hmm, talking mm-hmm. about this exact thing mm-hmm. on this season of The Uncertain Hour with TANF and all the ways it yeah. leaks, that money mm. leaks from the system. But Matthew, you mentioned earlier and we talked about the child tax credit. And I guess that whole situation was almost the perfect example of kind of why we were stuck because – there was all this research saying that the child tax credit would help lift kids out of poverty. And then they rolled out this big child tax credit program in an emergency. And lo and behold, it lifted half the kids in poverty out of poverty. And then Congress let it mm-hmm. expire. Mm-hmm. 
so now what? what if this what, is the way that our better? government right, 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 <laughs> does right. with what we know works, like how do you move forward right. from that? I think we have to take responsibility for that. You know, on the one hand, we can kind of point to Congress and we can point to that one vote. You know, we were one vote away from having mm-hmm. an established child tax credit. But I also think that Congress didn't feel the heat from us, you, me, everyone mm-hmm. listening. And I think that often we're very fluent in the language of critique and not very vocal in the language of celebration, saying, hey, I want this. Yes, let's do this. And I think mm-hmm. that more of us need to have political will and take political action um, the next time this comes around and demand these kind of things fr- from our leadership. You know, Congress is going to be Congress. And I think that I've become very wary of absolving theories of the problem. I want us to start taking more responsibility. And on this issue, sure, we can point to that one lawmaker. But you know what? I don't think enough of us picked up the phone and enough Mm -hmm. of us wrote our representatives to say, please keep this. I want this to be our new normal. Matthew Desmond, who is the author of the new book, Poverty by America, also the amazing book Evicted uh, back a couple years ago. Uh, Thank you so much, Matthew. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Hmm. Yeah, it's real easy to blame Congress and not blame ourselves. That's a very good point. Um, And yeah, it takes picking up the phone and, and putting on that heat. But I don't know, that just kind of blew my mind when it happened because we talked about it a lot on Marketplace about, you know, all these kids being lifted out of poverty, that it was like evidence based and it worked and all these kids that were getting, you know, better school lunches and all these things, these programs that help kids not be hungry, help kids, you know, start performing better. And then it just went away, you know, And, and it was so wild because like, it, it worked, yep. and then it stopped. Yep. Uh, yeah, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> no, I, I don't think there's anything to say, so I will not. Uh, we do want to know, however, what you have to say. Our number is 508-827-6278, 508-U-B-S-M-A-R-T. Those are all letters. Email us if you like, make me smart at marketplace.org. We are coming right back. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org slash academy.
All right, to the news we go. Kimberly Adams, your turn. So since we are talking about poverty, uh, one, you know, one of the things that Matt was saying was that these are choices that we make about how we spend our federal funds, our state funds on po- issues of poverty. And there was a really classic example of that um, in New York with this tragic tragic, tragic, tragic situation with Jordan Neely, who was a man experiencing homelessness, who seemed to have some mental illness, who was, you know, uh, exhibiting some, you know, kind of hostile behavior, but not necessarily violent behavior uh, on a train and ended up getting tackled and and choked to death. Uh, And obviously, there's been you know, all sorts of back and forth about whether or not it was murdered, although the coroner has ruled it homicide and there's investigations and things like that. But I'll point to um, a Eugene Robinson essay in the Washington Post that, you know, regardless of where this lands on culpability, broader society holds some responsibility for the choices that we mm-hmm. made that mm-hmm. put Jordan Neely in that situation on that train. And it lays out how he been struggling with mental health and struggling with homelessness and had been in and out of hospitals, in and out of the criminal justice system, not able to get the mental health care that he needed. And, you know, it's one of these things that a lot of us see people experiencing these very extreme circumstances. And it's very easy to look away and, you know, say the system is messed up. And, you know, Mm -hmm. what can I do? Mm -hmm. But there are things that individually we can do to, you know, help and make a difference. And part of that is, you know, pushing our lawmakers on the policy decisions they make that create these systems and maintain these systems or allow these systems to fail. And this man did not need to die that way or at all, all. really. And it's... It's so sad. It's, it's really sad. It, and it, that is of a piece with what Matt was just talking about. The whole, the, yeah. these are the choices we make. And we are making them, we are making them as a country, right? Yeah. Uh, okay. Awkward segue, totally different topic, extremely geeky, but possibly long-term important. There's a piece in Bloomberg today. It's an interview with the CEO of a Brazilian wood pulp company called Suzano. His name is Walter Schalka. None of that is relevant. What's relevant is what he said in the interview, which is this. So remember, this guy produces, he runs the world's biggest hardwood pulp company, that is to say what you make paper out of, and China is 43% of his market, right? Here's what he said in an interview the other day. He is going to start using the Chinese yuan, the Chinese renminbi, in transactions, not the dollar. We've talked before, I think, tangentially on this podcast about the dollar as the global reserve currency, why it matters, the Mm -hmm. benefits and challenges that it presents to the American economy. But for now, the benefits really outweigh the challenges that it presents. And there has been talk lately of, you know, maybe the dollar's dominance is declining. Maybe it's going to go away. Maybe there's the euro or the renminbi. Who knows? So here's another step. Here's another step. This is not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen next year or in five years. Uh, But at some point, the American dollar is not going to be the global reserve currency. Uh, and this or the just, only one, at or, least. or the only, right? There may be a couple. You're right. Um, yeah. Uh, but here's just a marker. Here's just a marker. It's it's kind of interesting. Totally dorky. Totally geeky. You don't need to read the interview or anything because really hardwood pulp, unless you're in the field, 
right? It's not the most engrossing thing. But I don't know. I found it very interesting uh, because, like, the commodities, if you actually start reading into them in general, can tell you so many interesting things about the way the world works. Like, I remember I was doing a story once on you know, copper futures and how the futures Mm -hmm. market in copper is a big predictor of economic growth because you need copper if you're making wiring, which, you know, can let you know when a country is about to, you know, expand its electricity grid or, you know, any other type of high-tech development, you know, there'll be a a boost in the demand for copper, right? And that can tell you about economic growth. Who knew? Um, And the same way, the tissue and pulp business, I didn't know that Brazil was one, had one of the, had the world's largest pulp producer and- you know, it makes sense that China would be one of their bigger markets because, I mean, we do a lot more emailing than printing these days, You've probably mm-hmm. not as much as mm-hmm. we should. Mm-hmm. And so other countries are probably still relying more on paper. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. But I don't know. I, I, I always find commodity stories fascinating. Totally. Totally agree. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. So, so that's it for the news fix. Let's do the mailbag. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. Okay, last week on May the 4th, um, I was very entertained uh, by the new Star Wars video game that gives you the rare opportunity to see what a bathroom looks like in the Star Wars universe. And Baird sent us this in an email, quote, I believe one of the first Star Wars bathrooms was presented by Mad Magazine cartoonist Sergio Aragonis. This cartoon appeared in issue number 197 back in March of 1978. And this photo is amazing. It's a clip of this um, cartoon, which shows, I'm guessing, who's supposed to be Luke Skywalker Mm -hmm. or some other Star Wars character, heading into a bathroom that has a lot of different openings in lots of different shapes and, and positions on the wall that, you know, if you think about the different shapes and and orifices of various Star Wars characters, yeah, it would make sense that people would need openings at different locations Mm -hmm. and positions and this reflects that so yeah and luke is walking in looking very confused but this is it's pretty funny you should have a look at the show notes totally totally it's fabulous uh one more it's an email from carl and ariana here's what he says or they say i suppose Kai, my wife and i love your rants rants in air quotes there however i think it's unfair to call them rants i think they should be called Decent human being concerns. Well, I, I appreciate that. I don't I don't like to get ranty, but sometimes things just set me off, man. That's all I can say. It's like that bumper sticker. If you're not mad, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. True. Well, truer yeah. today more than ever, practically. Although I imagine that's been said in every age. Yeah, probably. Yeah, it probably has. Anyway, I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we're going to go. Uh, we will leave you, uh, as we always do, with this week's answer to the Make Me Smart question. What is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? In honor of Mother's Day this coming weekend, all y'all got like four days to figure this out, maybe five, I forget, mm. uh, if you haven't. <clears throat> uh, this week's answer comes to us from our producer, Courtney's mom, Karen. She's in Chicago. What is something I thought I knew but later found out I was wrong about? Well, I thought I had an infinite amount of time to take my kids on vacations and adventures <laughs> For example, Mm. we lived two hours from beautiful Banff, Canada, and I always assumed we would take our kids to Canada for skiing, snowboarding, and sightseeing. We never made it. 
Quicker than I thought, their school, sports, jobs, friends, and life filled their calendars. I look back and still think of so many things I wanted to do with my kids, but time ran out. I'm now learning to meet my adult children where they're at and be Mm -hmm. grateful for the awesome memories we made and look forward to all the new ones in the years to come. Amen. Totally true. Completely. I co-sign that for sure. For bleeping sure. Where did you want to go with your kids that you didn't? Oh, I mean, look, we did really well by our kids and we were able to travel and do some stuff. But look, they grow up and they get busy and pretty soon it's, no, you know, I can't make it. Sorry. And you're like, really? Yeah. 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 That's rough. Yep. All right. Well, we want to know what you've been wrong about. Leave us a voice message with your answer to the Make Me Smart question. Our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. Make Me Smart, which is the podcast you are listening to, is produced by Karen's daughter, Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfes writes our newsletter. Our intern is Antonio Barreras. Today's program is engineered by, sorry, just checking. Yes, it is still Charlton Thorpe in there. <laughs> Gary O'Keefe is going to mix it down later from New York. Ben Talladay and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital. And Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. We had so much extra time today. I know, right? Well, I think I think they're playing the like the longer music on. I don't know. Well, there were a lot of credits today. That's true. It's the Tuesday credits. Oh uh, yes, takes a lot Tuesday to get this credits. show on. It does. It takes a lot of people. Feeds. Kimberly and I just have the fun jobs. Everybody else yeah. does all the work. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.